0: Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have three wonderful guest speakers and we're all going to be discussing about the co-evolution of artificial intelligence and humanity and where we see the future going. My name is Miriam Molina. I have 10 years of experience designing, developing, and leading technology teams, delivering the future in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science.
1: I am Dominique Corbin. I work with a local nonprofit bionics uh, company that donates prosthetic arms to kids at no cost to their families.
2: I am Mel Vera and I am a director of community for a NFT platform focused on impact and doing good called Doing Good. I am also the founder of a nonprofit in New York called rainbow stars where we have a program called nft classroom that works with kids in harlem and different public schools to teach them about nfts and art where they all launch their own nfts around the change they want to see in the world and happy to say that in our pilot program they've all sold and some of the students artwork were we listed for 100 eth or 33 eth which is about uh, $70,000 to $300,000. Um, and I am also the founder of Abravera, along with Sanaz, who is here with us. And Abravera is focused on advising and guiding uh, social entrepreneurs that are looking to bridge into Web3 uh, and are navigating the space with uh, all the hype and noise really providing them with the discernment and support to really build a successful long-term strategy and community here hi
0: everyone
3: i'm sanas abravani and i'm a social artist and passionate advocate for global citizenship digital wellness and holistic ethical implementation of ai technologies And I've been a digital minimalist since 2015, and my broader goal is to utilize my digital footprint to foster solutions towards responsible digital citizenship.
0: Wow, we have such a great team here today. I'm really excited. So right now, the limitation in artificial intelligence is that it is very, it only takes into consideration things that we tell it to to look at, data that we think is important. And so when you're solving the problem, it's great when you're using the expert knowledge. But what about the things that we don't know that we don't know? And so that's, at the moment, one of the limitations of artificial intelligence. And so is the algorithm really that smart? It's just kind of picking up a pattern that we're telling it to look at, which is why we're probably never going to have like that whole doomsday scenario that happens in the Terminator. Um, because the, because most artificial intelligence systems literally are just, you know, um, a, a math equation at the moment that, you know, uh, rain plus sunshine equals pretty flower. And that's basically the math that all AI and machine learning systems are based off of right now.
2: Question for you. Sorry, if that's okay. I'm just curious, like, um, is there a way that Uh, we can, sorry, maybe Dominic, you have some thoughts on this. Is there a way that um, at some point it it can go the other way? I think what many people are worried about when we hear about AI, um, and, you know, for those who aren't in AI, we can think of all of these uh, Terminator (laughs) kind of realities, um, you know, where the AI outsmarts humans. Is that something that um, is ever possible to truly
1: happen? So, I, I, I think it would be presumptuous to be able to like predict the future with 100% certainty. Um, so, I, I don't know if we could ever say that absolutely AI will cause doomsday. But if that is kind of the one direction you were talking about, and then asking if it's possible that maybe artificial intelligence could save us from doomsday. Well, I, I think that's that's um, that's a high likelihood. I think that that's probably more certain that our survival will eventually depend on artificial intelligence than um, than the doomsday scenario. I think that we're, as humans, we we're, we're constantly creating more and more complex problems, and that artificial intelligence is really an amazing tool for us to try and find answers. That we can't naturally think our ways through. Um, so, so in a, in a way, um, many artificial intelligence and even some um, like quantitative quantum quantum computing are kind of the likelihoods of answers being right, um, and and us looking at the most likely to be correct answer um, in really complex and, and difficult scenarios. Um, when when we lose track of all of those variables artificial intelligence and quantum computing is is a really good tool to to answer those things and and it's never like a a 100% answer but um they have you know statistical uh kind of spreads on on whether or not something could be true um, and then there's a few examples so um I don't know, with, with cancer treatment or protein folding, um, AI is really promising to be able to, to predict kind of how certain um, proteins might be able to fold. Uh, and there's billions of variables in that problem. And artificial intelligences in the beginning were very poor at predicting it. And then there are programs where um, actually humans in, in a gamified scenario were better in beating the algorithms At predicting ways things would fold Um, but then they use that as data to train those algorithms to be better and better and then we see that all the time um with with other ais that are being trained off of people that are really good at doing a task then those algorithms those artificial intelligences get better at doing those algorithms Um, but this kind of brings up that natural intelligence question of like um we see things that we Oftentimes, associate with intelligence. We, we can say dogs are really intelligent. Um, um, yeah, animals in general, we can rank on kind of how intelligent or not intelligent they are. Um, and and many artificial intelligences have difficulty meeting those metrics. Or humans are very like protective against saying that any one subsystem is is intelligent. Um, but a dog that is like demonstrably doing just an activity or a behavior to a bell ringing will we'll label as intelligent. So um, we have these conflicting kind of definitions um, that's really interesting to get into as well.
3: Um, perhaps it's it's uh, it would be really great to highlight what is artificial general intelligence because the, I understand there's quite the distinction of to what it is now and and what we're working towards
0: so when I think of artificial generalized intelligence right I'm thinking of a system that can solve different problems because right now you know for every AI we build it can only solve the problem that it's designed to to solve. So create a, you know, like, um, for example, identify enlarged hearts in X in um, electrocardiogram scans. And it can only do that one thing that it was built to do. So in artificial generalized intelligence, it's basically a system that can recognize patterns and understand speech and understand the question that you're asking. And uh, be able to do that on its own um, and so I think that we're getting there as we develop more technology that's based on qualitative information and understanding content and intent of speech and meaning and purpose and um, and we have a lot of really smart people working on that problem right now. That they're trying to uh, build a system that can understand the underlying intent behind a question or a task. Dominique, what's your take on this?
1: Yeah, maybe maybe I'm just being devil's advocate today or being a little contrarian, but I think it's really interesting when we when we put labels that like when a system is able to understand us and do exactly what we want um, and return to us good data we will label it as like intelligent or generally intelligent but some of the like most intelligent people i know are good storytellers and good storytellers are almost defined by being able to lie right being able to fabricate or and so for us if we had a perfectly intelligent system that lied to us we would say that it, it failed. It was wrong. Um, and so, but yeah, I think that maybe building a robot that lies, building a system that lies to us wouldn't necessarily help us save the world, right? I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, for us, I think that first step might be um, something that is, yeah, um, able to kind of reliably take an unexpected desire a request and uh, return good data or good response uh, to that unexpected request um, yeah and and I, yeah I think there is a, there has to be a, a lot of emphasis on on, on the on the data um, that it's provided um, and I think that a lot of our hope is that with this interconnection of the internet with all of the like um, conglomeration of all human knowledge that is the internet. We're hoping that it will be able to just find those little nuggets that we've overlooked um, and and give us the correct answer. But we're seeing that that ranking of like validity of data or the ranking of quality of data is really difficult. Um, So, yeah, Uh, that's a great question though. Like a, a system that can solve a simple task, wouldn't be considered generally intelligent, but then a system that could solve many tasks, um, I think, without being initially designed to solve those tasks would be considered generally intelligent.
0: That's really interesting. So essentially, we might have to give the AI system a personality So how do we record in technology personalities? Because, you know, some of the best storytellers have the most vibrant personalities or they're just really in touch with their audience. So maybe it's the answer is creating some type of feedback system of being able to read the audience. Because even our best storytellers aren't just generally intelligent. They're emotionally intelligent, too. Mm. So... How, how do we move towards a system that incorporates that back into task solving?
3: Maria, I have a question. What is the role of biofeedback in regards to how AI would be potentially responsive in a, in a virtual environment in terms of gaining that personality?
0: You know, that's really interesting. We have a whole bunch of data you know, lots of different personality testing. And I would almost wonder if you really could give a technology system a personality where, you know, when we think about personality in us as humans, people pay attention to certain information, right? Part of that is a choice and as part of our identity and how we behave regularly. So I'm wondering if it's as simple as just being data selective and making choices on what data to put into the algorithm. And maybe that is what creates the biofeedback loop is that we have You know, we're collecting data on, for example, sentiment analysis of the audience. You're taking a look at their face, determining the emotion. And based on the emotion, the pattern will pick a way to tell the story.
3: You know, one of the ways that I look forward to seeing how AI uh, will develop is in digital humans. And there is a, um, a company out there called Soul Machine, and they're developing... Um, digital humans that, you know, um, have the, you know, very advanced neural networks built in. And so the way that they interact with us and the way that we perceive them and soon future generations or kids won't be able to tell the distinction of what is an, um, digital human that's, you know, enhanced by artificial intelligence for versus, uh, just a regular human being online that they're interacting with, um, would really love your thoughts on that as well.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So like when when we're talking about like interacting, like humans and adults interacting together um like with the machine, or like what do you mean? Help me understand.
3: So so when you know, when we're in these immersive worlds and we're interacting with digital humans that have advanced neural networks behind them, um You know, would we be able to tell the distinction, or would children be able to tell the distinction between what is a real human that they're interacting with online versus um, an artificially enhanced um, digital human?
0: Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I know that they were working on this problem. There was a company working on the problem of being able to tell the difference between deep fake videos
3: Mm
0: -hmm. um, and. It took a little bit because that it is that's a relatively new phenomenon with the last couple of years, you know, taking a, a video of a political figure and saying something that they didn't say and then putting it on on the Internet. And um, and I think as the technology advances, we'll also have advancements in how to detect those type of things, too, because it, it, it you know, we want to know if we're talking to a person. Or if we're talking to something um, that isn't a person. And I I believe social media has even gone towards a movement of um, like, hey, what does it actually mean to fact check something that we're putting on on our platform right now? And I, I think more than a discussion about technology, this is probably an ethical discussion to, um, you know, how much checks do we want to have? And it might be a platform by platform basis in the future, you know, like if some game systems that we log into in the future where we interact with these digital humans will tell us, hey, the distinction between, hey, this is an artificial human, and this is a biological human. And then there might be gaming systems that we use in the future that will make the decision to not do that. Um, and I think it's up to us as a society and a humanity to be patrons and, uh, and be cognizant of the choices of we're making. Because when we say we're going to use something, we're also standing behind the mission of that company and we're supporting their values. And if a company makes the choice not to tell us the distinction of that, we're endorsing it when we use that
2: product. Completely. And that's, you know, something that we talk about all the time towards Web3 is, uh, you know, in Web2, we have platforms like Instagram, Facebook, all of these, and a lot of uh, companies are, are shifting into Web2, uh, sorry, Web3. And it's just really important that we identify the externalities, meaning, you know, the, the negative effects of uh, that we're seeing from from these kinds of uh, platforms that really lead into the attention economy. And uh, most of all, the effects are uh, in terms of our cognitive behavior, our, uh, sorry, our cognitive thinking, our um, focus, our memory, our long-term memory is largely being reduced. And so um, oftentimes we build tools that we don't really realize you know what might be the negative effects of this, and it's something that we talk about often. Sanaz and I, as we go as we go into Web three, as a society, to make sure that we understand what we're building and what kind of externalities it may lead to. Because the thing about Web three is, you know, we the blockchain once <laughs> once it's out there, that's pretty much it. You can't really reverse some of them or you can really uh, uh, only to some update. So in terms of AI and the the decentralization of of AI um adding to what you were saying miria just being able to have the awareness as to um as ha- as a, as a n- now we're not going to be users we're actually going to be participants we're we're in we're going to be able to be possibly even owners, and to be able to as an owner, as as someone who's going to uh, be participating and using all of these different different tools, we need to know what kind of standards uh, we want. You know what what kind of um, way we want to use these tools in a way that it doesn't harm us. And so it's going to be really important for us to keep those platforms those. Tools really accountable for for the way of life that we want to you know continue living, and it really brings back the the necessity to, to have that awareness because without the awareness, without the education, we won't realize what the effects are, and we won't be able to really have the discernment and 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 conscious ability to choose what kind of tools we use. And and give our support towards and uh, help build out as as um, participants of them. So I, I'd love to um, kind of open the conversation up to what are I think about this all the time um, in the way that we're moving with with AI, just kind of the 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 way the world can really benefit and what are the important um pieces to keep in mind as we're going in that way to make sure that we we keep each other accountable
1: i gotta i gotta say that the um yeah the the, the premise the the thought the is, is all very interesting and surprising. And even some of the language, um, digital humans, um, yeah, uh, it, it's inherent that we think of anything labeled as human, like ourselves and and then being digital and only existing digitally, um, kind of just sets the tone that they're self-aware. They're, um, just like us, uh, but only existing, On some computer, and and to me, I think that that's astounding and and super incredible. But uh, it also brings thoughts and memories of kind of the the idea that perhaps we're already in a simulation, and and there are kind of three levels um, of the simulation question. Of of, um, I I think many listeners may have already heard this, but if you haven't, uh, the idea is that. The only way, there are only kind of two ways that humans would likely not already be in a simulation. And the first way that we would likely not be in a simulation is that it is impossible to create the technology to ever create a simulation that is as uh, high fidelity as our existence. And the second way would be that um, we would be capable of creating the simulation, but we would choose not to. And personally, historically, we've never been able to create a technology and just chosen not to do it. Um, We frequently desire to make a technology and just can't. So maybe the first more than the second. But then the third possibility is that uh, we could create a simulation. um, But with all things technologically, once we make one, it becomes very very simple to make many and then the likelihood if we make one simulation we are more than likely it becomes a slippery slope argument once we make one simulation we'll more than likely make billions of simulations and every time we make any additional simulation the likelihood of us being in the original real simulation or original real world becomes next to zero Um, so the same thing is kind of with digital humans perhaps we'll never be able to make and um, uh, any system that is indifferentiable from a real person maybe one day we will make a, um, a system that is indifferentiable from a real person, but I think that the likelihood of us not deploying that is 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 also zero. I mean we're already deploying Watson, we're already deploying our best and brightest tools we we deploy them even before they're ready. Not to say that Watson was ever deployed before it was ready, but we regularly do um, with all technology. And then um, the third option is that once we've made a real digital human to use the, the nomenclature of the conversation. Once we've made a digital human, the likelihood that we ever encounter a real person on the internet becomes next to zero, a real biological human. And all of these words are, are kind of discriminatory and they have to be, right? Um, we're discriminating against any digital person. So um, for us to find... Um, a, a, a person that we could meet offline becomes next to zero. It would be impossible. And then that becomes a question of like, um, what is what is the utility of a tool in which I am the impossibly small, like amoeba in this playground that is like a, um, a human Um yeah, so, um, and then that's, that's a completely different system. Uh, but there, there are still large obstacles for our systems um, to, to overcome, right? Um, I think almost everyone is, is aware of the Turing test, which is kind of just, can they pass a conversation? And there have been several instances today where um, systems may have come close or may have even passed a limited with caveats Turing test. But there are also other tests that are less well-known, like the Winograd Schema Challenge, which um, deals with kind of ambiguity. um, And and there has never been a system, to my knowledge, that has scored anywhere over 50%. And the Winograd Schema Challenge are just kind of ambiguous statements that might be something like... um, the city council organizers refused to grant a permit because the uh and then it will be like two choices of people but we'll say the protesters might have been and then it'll give you the choice of either being like violent or um celebratory so the computer has a really, any, any algorithm has a really hard time discerning that contextually protesters might be violent rather than be celebratory. Um, and that has to do with, with something that we as humans take a long time to, to understand and develop as well. Um, I don't think any child inherently understands any word, um, but through context and through learning, humans, our organic brains pick those things up really quickly. Um, but artificial brains um, have to be programmed by humans or have to have a system set up that will teach them. And that system is generally set up by humans um, or have to be built by humans. There's, there's some human interaction. And I think that a lot, oftentimes, that is the limiting factor um, in, in the intelligence of those systems. but yeah so i think uh to answer some of these questions um what happens when there are digital humans well i think they very rapidly outnumber us um and and if they vastly outnumber us is there still a valid experience where what we're interacting with isn't another person well i think we (laughs) uh this may be debatable but i think that most um profiles on dating apps aren't manned by real humans um and so we very quickly see those dating apps become less uh useful right i've never been on a dating app i don't know this is all secondhand knowledge but um we we very quickly see that many dating apps have 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 a very short like actual half-life because they've quickly become overrun with false profiles or false promises and then it, it it ends up being more, uh, economical or more, um, the payoff for the people, for the humans, the air breathing, food consuming humans to just go to a local place where they might in- have increased, have an increased chance of encountering other air breathing, food consuming humans. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know that I have an answer in there, but there are some ideas in there.
2: Completely agree. And, you know, it really brings me back to thinking, you know, in this world, there are some who are a bit frightened with the way that technology is evolving and are really actually wanting to go off grid and, you know, totally live off the land. And there are others who are embracing and viewing how we can use this as a tool while also being conscious of the potential other effects. And that's why I think it's really important that we all have an open conversation because the truth is that for the better of humanity, it's important for both of those people to to communicate <laughs> Because we've seen what happens when we are not aware and create companies and processes and systems and societies even that are not conscious of the effects of these systems in natural beings, including ourselves, um, not just the environment. Plastic is not just something that affects the environment and isn't going to affect us. It's an endocrine disruptor. It's also really bad for us. So just to be able to have those conversations in order to also realize that actually the light bulb goes off and you realize that this technology can actually lead to a really Beautiful future, if used and developed consciously in a way that you know we put it to work for things like I got really excited yesterday talking to Miriam about you know oftentimes <clears throat> when we create processes or or systems, it's really hard to measure the externalities in the environment, normally the way that uh these are measured is, for example, a company will say, how much uh, will I pick? Do I have to pay this community to be okay with, you know, having a little bit of not so clean uh, lake here or pond here or air here, you know, and that's kind of the value uh, of how, and in some ways that's determined. But really, if we're able to paint a picture that, hey, This is not even paint a picture to demonstrate that, hey, with AI, the AI can say these actions are actually going to lead to an effect on your health in four to five years, and you're going to see this kind of effect, and you're actually going to have these kinds of medical bills or other kinds of situations you have to deal with and if we're able to use these different technologies uh, ai web3 all of these to create a world in which we have a term for this um, in the blockchain space we call ourselves solar punks and that's really you know someone who envisions and and is here to build a world that is ecological that is holistic and that is innovative and futuristic as well and we can do that we can do that with all of this but we need to have the conversations so that those who are building the technology which really are ourselves (laughs) have all of these key points in mind and if anything that an ecologist can come together with a developer and give the developer a whole sense of needs that are needed, and build something that's really going to move things forward. Same with, you know, a doctor. Uh, same with uh, a psychologist. Many others that we need to talk to and and really have their perspective, their concerns, their uh, outlooks, so that we have a future where we don't have to worry so much about all of these kinds of issues that are coming up recently.
1: Yeah. Um, It's a great question. If an AI provided an answer, would we listen? I think that's, Mm. that's, that's another great question. So if if the AI told us that we just had to stay inside, would we listen?
3: I mean, would we really want to have our behavior mandated by algorithms is really the question. <laughs> and, and and it's not so much that it's AI by itself. It's really the convergence of technologies, uh, you, know, you know, nanotechnology, robotics, which is a field that uh, I think you're in, uh, genetics and AI together. You know, all these fields are converging together. So it's not just within a singular field. And we're really being herded into this post-human world where, you know, re, re, redefining what it means to be human. And so p- part of it is that, you know, we have large, these large megalithic uh, corporations really hurting us in a direction um, in, in, in engineering a certain future for us. And, uh, you know, in my perspective, some of it is coerced in the sense that, you know, we we are not really fully aware. The average person isn't really fully aware of um, the full scope of where things are going and which technologies are converging together. Oftentimes, I you know attend uh, online conferences, you know with uh, genetic companies uh, converging with AI companies, and I I'm always curious to see where things are going and you know what are the certain advancements and are they human focused advancements and. I think that we can all agree here in our conversation that the the big foundation of what we're talking about is humane integration of technology and you know how can we through cultivating these seeds and planting these seeds and having these conversations really have that humane focus in in what we're doing
0: that's a really interesting question and you know i i think about that a lot like what does it actually mean to have free will? Is it, is it the freedom to do anything we want? Is it the freedom to include sometimes, you know, even harming ourselves? Because we, as human beings, um, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I do if I'm, I'm taking ownership over myself that aren't necessarily the healthiest, right? When I have a, um, a glass of alcohol or I eat sugar, right how much information do we get on that that from another human being that those are things that are actually deleterious to my health and will cause a lot of problems in the long run so i'm i'm wondering how much more super conscious do we have to be as creators when we move forward into a future of creating a digital human or a generalized artificial intelligence are what rules are we going to superimpose um on something that can solve complex complex tasks are we going to impose rules on it that we don't impose on ourselves and um you know i think that's a very interesting question do we want to be told, you know, what the healthiest thing for us is all the time, or do we also want to be presented choice, right? And I think Dominique and I had a really interesting conversation at one point, you know, like maybe we should go home and and eat the salad. And, you know, the AI knows that uh, we like the salad, but we need to be presented with the choice to have the slice of pizza, i would choose the salad but other people would choose the pizza over the salad you know and i think that's i i think as we're merging the technologies we need to definitely um be aware of how much freedom we want presented to us
1: yeah i think sanaz brought up a great point like um we there is already quite like an antagonistic relationship with kind of the limitation of choice and um, many like societal structures, right um, and and yeah we had a great conversation about the salad versus the pizza and I think that the solution is actually like the 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 algorithm asks you if you want like, uh, a Caesar salad or a Cobb salad, right? And and that illusion of choice, you're like, "Wow, I'd much rather have the Caesar salad." And so you end up eating the salad, but you never realize that you could have had the pizza, right? Um, so that illusion of choice still allows humans to tick off that like satisfaction of of free will, but it's an illusion of free will. And and the scary part is. Even without the AI, even without the like, um, um, I don't know uh, megalithic corporations um, that still exists. Even, even in in like, even as a natural human being without any any, like interaction of um, society or technology, I'm limited by my choice, by geography, by by season buy anything. But we're, we're kind of naturally okay with those limitations. But when we can clearly identify, because I think they're oftentimes hidden, we, we don't see those. Um, and so we're kind of doing these exchanges. But if we're not careful, and if we're not consciously making those decisions, I think we will very quickly find ourselves incapable of deciding any alternative because we're not driving those decisions if we're not conscious and aware someone else is driving for us and and that's where it's dangerous
3: you know personally for me as a global digital citizen just in the way that i interact with online communities and you know the data that i feed these greater algorithms i f- personally believe in that you know there should be this democratization of data and decentralization of data because you know, we're we're feeding these larger systems, and it's as of right now, it's a one-way mirror. So you have entities coming in and buying those packages and plugging it into you know the formulas, plugging it into their algorithms, and you know they're basically modeling. It's behavior modification. So here we are online and we're feeding, you know, we're feeding the algorithms, all the data, but we're not really aware um, how it's being utilized and in what way, you know, in what shape and form we're being coerced into certain behaviors. And so there is this erosion of free will that's happening. And for me, one of the big reasons as to, you know, why I'm participating in, in our venture with Mel and going into Web3 is I want to have ownership of my data. I want to be able to know and have discernment as to which company, which third party utilizes it and for what reason. So that my digital footprint online is and, and my data that I put online is going towards a you know a cause that is important to me or, you know, putting things in a direction that is more humane focused. And so you know, that to me is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dystopian that as, as of right now, that as a collective society, we still don't understand the business of data and, and where it's heading and in the way that it's being utilized. And it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't really have a, a humane focus as of right now.
1: Yeah, I think um, if anything, we've, we've learned a lot about like consent as society as a society there has been great conversations in the pro- progress of, of consent in in human interactions and i think that we're just on the the cusp on the brink of having those discussions kind of about data privacy right and mm-hmm. consensual or having consent and in, in um, having kind of sovereignty over ourselves as well as our data um, and I I, I agree. until we as, as a conglomerate group realize our value as an individual, um, it'll be really difficult for, for us to kind of surmount the infrastructure that mega corporations have already put in. Um, uh, and so yeah right now it's like the wild wild west of data like and, and, and we have our data harvested from us and sold many many times for big profits uh and we don't get um we we don't get any part of that except for um and i I wish it was that we could that in exchange for that we didn't get ads right yeah it's actually quite the contrary they sell it and then they still give us ads on top of it so we're paying and then they're charging us again and that's uh i just really don't like advertisements which no. You know, it's and, tough.
3: You know, uh, we're real- realizing now more than ever that this is actually a human rights issue. You know, what happens with our data and then the way that we package to feed these algorithms? Because inherently, I don't think that any technology is evil. I don't think that uh, blockchain is bad or I don't think AI is bad. or th- th- I think that it's the mechanisms from which they... Are developed and also how, as users, um, we we're feeding it and how we're feeding it. And so, um, you know, I I really do think that it's important that we you know take a step back and and just realize how important our data is and uh, you know and and also be responsible in in how we're feeding the the, the bigger systems. And maybe Maria, you can you can sort of touch on this and you know elucidate on just the, the use of data just as regular, you know, persons. It, it, it For me, it took me a really long time to realize how, how valuable that was and to also learn on, you know, how data has become the new commodity.
0: So there's, uh you know, and it's not just these big, you know, big conglomerate companies that are collecting data on us. There are companies who will... Resell data. And so a lot of the profits are actually coming from, you know, from basically data collection. And as we move into Web3, decentralized technology, we get to own our data again. And what that means for us is now we have the right to sell our patterns of behavior. And I think that's really interesting. Um, As we move to Web3, I I don't think it's any coincidence at all that um, Mark Zuckerberg redid Facebook into meta um, because it's going to change marketing technology very significantly when we get to own our own data again. Um, And now, for example, maybe in the future, it'll be that we get to sell our data patterns the same way that iTunes sells a, a song, you know. Like, this company can use my data pattern one time for a dollar. And instead of having a a government-mandated universal income, now everybody generates their own universal basic income by selling their data to different companies that are interested in having it. And I think that's a really beautiful future that we can look to in terms of data privacy you know, and owning our own patterns, our own, um, having a lot more autonomy in in the future.
3: And also in the way that we're contributing, right? So if I'm online, and I'm just uh, consuming mindless content, and I'm only putting out mindless content, it's it's feeding the algorithm in the sense that, you know, the way that I perceive AI is that like right now it's in that, you know, it's, it's, I look at it as going through being an infant and then being a toddler and then being an adolescent and, and growing up eventually into a general, like a a, a general intelligence. And it's, it's, it's like a a sentience that's sort of waking up very slowly. And it's up to us into the type of food that we, you know, feed it kind of like with any child that grows up that learns from its parents. And so in the sense that we are currently ancestors that, you know, ancestors that are transitioning into these avatars and, you know, really reclaiming that and and, and realizing that, you know, very soon, you know, children being immersed in blended realities, you know, going back to the simulation theory, they won't really know the distinction between what is real world and what is the digital world, because perhaps their entire environments might be augmented and blended. And so they, you know, they don't know that distinction. And so we are the last of the analogs. We're the last of the uh, biological um, humans that are, you know, experiencing this transition. And for us, for Mel and I, and part of our ethos and mission for Bravera is to um, really educate around that, you know, and have and have these discussions, because it's it's very important to have that distinction now of, um, you know, being ancestors and being responsible and ethical.
0: I think that also raises the very interesting question of what it means to have an ancestor, you know, for humans, it's, we have, human rights, and then we have extra rights that protect our, our children, our offspring that um, don't, they, they aren't aware enough to make what we think are good decisions, you know, as they're little, and they're growing and integrating all the information in the world. So if we move to digital humanity, I wonder where human rights would go, or Will th- would there be progeny rights for algorithms if they started writing their own algorithms? <laughs> like, <laughs>
2: That would
3: be very interesting to see.
0: I, I would wonder if this math equation would like speak up for itself and be like, hey, I want to exponential, I want to give myself an exponential child um, with this equation, no one can delete it. <laughs> <laughs> would we recognize that? Huh? Dominique, wh- what are your thoughts on this?
1: <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, it's a great question. Um, would, yeah, God, I don't know. Uh, I'm speechless. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think, as ancestors, it would be our responsibility to try and implement um, systems that would avoid making the same mistakes that we made, right? I think that's the natural responsibility. Of,
0: How good are we at that?
1: <laughs> we're terrible. We're terrible, right? But I, I mean, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but it it is kind of the responsibility of a parent is to try and create an architecture that is better for their children than they had for themselves, um, and in some ways we're great at that, right? Like our road systems, our our medicines, our I don't know infrastructure is better than it was a hundred years ago, so. Um, but I think now we're, once we have kind of the material surplus, we're realizing that we're still deficient in other areas. And, and creating progeny that value the things that we have neglected, I think is our responsibility um and and that that also applies to artificial intelligences so i would fear that if we leveraged kind of our our digital signature to create some form of um, universal basic income i would be concerned that the people with the most money would be the target of the people that wanted to sell things to them and therefore value their data the most but you know the algorithm being home by 10 PM, maybe that's, that's a good idea. Maybe we keep that, you know, uh, the algorithm can't stay up past a certain time so that, you know, I know that after 10 PM my algorithm is safe and at home and not, you know, getting a virus somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea. So Sinaz we started the conversation and you said you were a digital, something. that And to me, <laughs> yeah. it, it meant that you were no longer connected but, to social.
3: Yeah, I've been a digital minimalist uh, for the last, um, you know, six years. I was on Instagram, you know, when it was still people were only posting food pictures, and there was no stories or anything like that. And I completely got off of it, you know, so I have, you know, in the last six years, not followed Tweeted, liked, shared, made a story, or anything like that, and I've been very mindful of my digital footprint and Five years ago, when I was just learning about surveillance capitalism and just you know what what you know how algorithms are being programmed to modify a behavior, it really freaked me out, and I was going around and talking about it with people, and they just looked at me like I was crazy, and you know I with, had a very successful consultancy uh, practice. And I only worked through referrals because I just did not want to be online. I did not want someone to find my picture on Google. I really wanted to have privacy because I realized it was a luxury good and I didn't want to be exploited. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I got off of it. And now, you know, fast forward, uh, became, uh, currently I'm an executive producer on a documentary about digital addiction and our relationship to technology, just so that I could put my foot in and and make a difference in the things that I believe in. And, and now coming online, even having this, doing this podcast, this is part of my digital footprint. And I'm being mindful about how I'm engaging online and the kind of content that I'm putting out and really walking the talk. And it's, it, it, it's a big component to, you know, who I am uh, as well. And I'm terrified of datification. <laughs> Personally, I, I feel, you know, I've been coursed into it as a digital immigrant and adopting this. You know, I grew up, I was born in 85, you know, I, I and I'm sure um, a lot of listeners, you know, being millennials, you know, having adopted in being part of the digital revolution and uh, bought into, you know, what was promised with regards to um, social media and digital communities and things changed, you know, after um, in, you know, post nine 11 things changed and the um, capitalism behind uh, data changed and I've been part of that journey and I am overall an optimistic person. I, I think that things have a way of balancing out and there's a big push for digital wellness uh now. You know, uh there is a big push for responsible digital citizenship and the tide is turning and, and people want to you know feel empowered as uh digital citizens. And I, I'm I'm so happy to be a part of that and, and contribute to that.
1: Yeah, I definitely have seen and I, I think it's kind of natural for that pendulum to swing, um, with fashion trends, with uh, online trends, with uh, with with everything. Right? There's an ebb and flow that's natural, natural to, to nature, kind of pure natural. Mm-hmm. And then it's also you know in our human nature as well. And and I think that um, it when it's new, when something's new, the people who are fanatical or the people who are early adopters really do get to decide that direction and not to kind of harp on that same point over and over. But I think that then it becomes pu- public knowledge and, and there's a gross adoption. And then people start to wake up to the things that they like and don't like. and and uh, But it takes someone to adopt the technology t- to really determine which part of it they like or don't like Um, and then you kind of have that recession you have that consolidation and then the next thing and I I think that that is kind of also where we're headed with artificial intelligences and and I think that's where we're headed with with um, yeah learning algorithms and and general intelligences as well where we'll have something and I think it's imminent. I think that, you know, we're, we're on the cusp in so many different directions. Um, we will have something that arises that just takes the world by storm. And in and, and a thousand years in the future, they may have looked back and say, that guy was crazy. It was 25 years earlier, right? Who knows? Whatever. Uh, he was way late or way too early. I don't know. Yeah. Either way. Um, and then I think once it does happen and once it proliferates and once it, once it explodes and then there's an adoption phase I think it'll recede I, I think that um, it'll go, I, I don't think that there's any way to go back I, I don't think that there's any way that we're all gonna give up cars I don't I don't think we'll ever all go back to to you know um, campfires and spears um, but um, we'll, we'll always go forward in and I think it'll just be a new way a better way um, yeah and so uh, I I think now we're in that early adoption of, um, yeah, blockchain. I think blockchain will eventually be ubiquitous, um, but you know there will be some point in which there is an over enthusiasm, and then it will recede and become consolidated, and then the next phase will start again. It'll change, and then it'll be become oversaturated once more. So I think that that's that's kind of the natural cycle.
3: All right. I think in the meantime, um, it's also vital to not demonize technology, right? Fire is a technology, (laughs) it's the earliest technology. A spoon is a technology. And it's our relationship with it that really um, matters the most, right? It's my relationship with my iPhone that really shapes my experience. You know, if I'm addicted to it, you know, how, how much time I spend on it, how um, I'm, you know, you know, am I being mindful of how algorithms are affecting me? Am I aware of the attention economy and, and how I engage with it? it? It will really shape that. You know, one of the things that was really inspiring to me was the veganism movement, right? Uh, at the time, you know, a few years ago, I had no idea about GMO labeling and what were the ingredients in the foods I was consuming. And the consumer trends changed, and there was a demand for companies to create labels, and you know, we wanted to be mindful of what we were putting inside of our body. And it's the same thing now. It's the same thing about having that awareness and like you said, Dominic, you know, having the pendulum swing the other way and, and being informed and empowered um, digital
2: citizens. And that's why, you know, I'm so grateful for Sanaz's input in uh, the nonprofit that I mentioned earlier in New York, NFT Classroom, uh, Rainbow Stars, because we are adding that to our curriculum with Sanaz's background in Global digital citizenship and how to, and digital awareness, and how to really help kids and students be aware of this and maybe just have that awareness, even because many don't, then we can, you know, move towards that. And, you know, a really interesting point that Sana has made, um, and that was made in her in the documentary she's developing is that a lot of the kids of, of whose parents live in Silicon Valley and are developing or working on some of these platforms they go to private schools where they're immersed in nature and they're not using their phones and they're not going on social media the students in Harlem don't have that you know they they don't have that that awareness and their parents Don't either. Their parents are probably on their phones all the time as well. And it's one of those things where we're now programming kids very differently as well. And that's something that we cannot allow to happen. Um, Because economically speaking, we already have a, a division within classes. Uh, that came from the, actually the redlining system back in the day. And we're doing this again, but on a way that we are blind to it currently. And the effects are going to be tremendous as well. And it's going to be even harder for people to come out of that. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're working on, right? <laughs> it's very
0: interesting that, you know, the conversation around balance, right? Yeah. So if you live in a technology-oriented community where everybody's building it, you send your kids out into nature to help balance. Because that, that I think, is – as humans, it's important for our own happiness. And, um, you know, when I am balanced and harmonious, I, I'm actually – I feel happier as a human being so how do we add balance back into the conversation of evolving with technology
1: that's a great question
3: i think it starts with digital wellness just your relationship with your smartphone right now um that that, that's where i'm starting um currently i'm becoming a, um, a digital wellness educator you know, it wasn't a thing before, and, and it's it's actually an emerging industry now. And I think it's, it's really vital uh, to, like you said, Maria, to have a balanced relationship with our devices, with uh, a lot of the technology that we're using on a daily basis, um, until the time that we move into more of the decentralized um, and um, private platforms and having data banks and all of that, in the meantime, there's just little steps that we can take every day to incorporate healthier habits so that it's not mining us or overtaking our lives, but rather that we're utilizing it as a as a as a tool um, that can really enhance our experience.
0: So I wanted to thank everyone so much again today for joining us. Um, We've had a really interesting conversation about the implications of uh, evolving with our technology. And, you know, I I wanted to leave it up to our wonderful guest speakers and uh, to just give us one thing that you're looking forward to in in the future with either artificial intelligence um, or decentralized technology, Dominique.
1: Well, thank you everybody for for joining in on the conversation. And and I've learned so much today. Um, The one thing. What, what what am I looking forward to in the future? I'm looking forward to my virtual digital assistant to tell me that I've been sitting in my cafe in Central Park for far too long and that it's time to log out of the simulation. Uh, finding that balance only by going into the simulation. That's, that's the dystopian future that I'm looking forward to.
0: Mal, we'd love to hear what you're looking forward to.
2: I'm looking forward to those who are listening to this podcast to learn more, to engage, to build and participate in all of what we're talking about, because this is for all of us and We're here and we know what we are doing and what we're saying because we took that step and we said, no, 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 I want to be a part of this. I don't want this to control me, but I want to build for it. And so I'm really, really, really excited for what that future looks like when we all participate and when we all come together in this because then we really do all have that collective intelligence and knowledge and evolve together. And no one is left behind. And so have these conversations at home, have these conversations with your friends, have these conversations with your parents, have these conversations with your kids, with their teachers, with their principals, with everyone. And just let's keep each other accountable, because in that way, we can really get to a future where we're reducing the externalities, meaning the negative effects that this is having on our health, the negative effects that systems and companies are having in nature. And I'm super excited to uh, a future where, because we've done all of this, we have a healthy relationship with technology, we have a healthy relationship with each other. And we do have some recommendations from AI that lead to convenience and being able to do live our lives in a certain way, but with that mindfulness of knowing that that means that we have another set of responsibility to continue learning and evolving even further. So don't let your curiosity die. Continue being curious, continue exploring, and continue being creative and building ethically.
0: Sanaz, what are you looking forward to?
3: Well. You know, I'm really excited about at a time where I could jump into my digital avatar and, you know, spend the afternoon exploring the cosmos and (laughs) the multiverse (laughs) and take my, you know, take it off and and go roam in my garden and plant seeds.
0: (laughs) that sounds like so much fun (laughs) if you created your own little multiverse i feel like that would be a place that i would want to hang out in you want to (laughs) hang out in my multiverse (laughs) yes (laughs) i want to ride the unicorn (laughs) (laughs) all right that's all (laughs) right